We'll look at the subject this morning of true repentance. Some of you might know, but um, I graduated from a college that where many of the people in that school believed in what is known as baptismal regeneration. Now, baptismal regeneration is just a fancy theological term for the belief that you are regenerated, that you are saved, that you receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. And therefore, in order to be saved, you must be baptized. It is, it is a belief that through being immersed in water, that you receive, ultimately receive, the free gift of eternal life. In fact, some would go so far as to say that not only must you be baptized in water by immersion, but you must be baptized in their church by them. Now, beloved, baptism is important. And here at East Point Church, we do seek to administer and we do seek to practice faithfully this biblical sacrament. And we want to make sure that we hold baptism in, in high esteem as the Bible does. However, while baptism is important, we need to understand that baptism is not essential. Baptism is not essential to salvation. Baptism is not essential to understanding and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not essential to trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul makes this point in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 17 where he says clearly, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And looking at that, even a cursory understanding of that shows us that there is a dichotomy between preaching the gospel and baptism. And while baptism is important in the life of the disciple and arguably the first act of obedience unto to Christ, the gospel, the gospel is understood and believed apart from it. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. However, beloved, there are some things that are essential to the gospel. There are some things that if you don't get them and if you don't understand them, if you don't proclaim them, then you don't proclaim the gospel, you don't understand the gospel, and you don't receive eternal life. One of those this morning we want to understand is the grace of repentance. What is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ is repentance. The gospel is never faithfully proclaimed or understood apart from the call to repent. 
And you see this throughout the scriptures, particularly in the, in the New Testament, as Jesus and his disciples are going about a preaching. The Bible says in, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 that John the Baptist was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Later on, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus, it says, went about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples in Mark chapter 6 and, and verse 12 understood this, and therefore the Bible says that when they went out, they went out preaching repentance from sin. Paul in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, as he's preaching there in the Areopagus, he says that now is the time that God calls upon all men everywhere to do what? Repent. In fact, in the Revelation, Jesus is preaching there to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Over and over again, he, he tells them of the need and the necessity for even those in the church to be called to repentance. We just sung the song, and it's so true. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. That's how you come nigh unto God. It is through faith and repentance. Preaching the gospel has always and will always include repentance. And those who faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ not only will call others to repent, but they will know this grace themselves. And so it is with Jonah. You might recall, if you remember the story of Jonah, that God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh in order that he might call out unto the Ninevites to repent. Jonah refuses to do what God commands him to do, and therefore Jonah now is in this predicament of being in the belly of this fish at the bottom of the sea where God calls on Jonah to do what? Repent. And so we see in our text this morning, and if this text reminds us of anything, it reminds us of what true repentance is. What is repentance? Let's just define the term. It's good to understand exactly what we're talking about. A good definition of repentance is that it is a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow over our sin coming from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have offended God. And now having this conviction, we desire to turn from sin and turn in obedience to God in our thoughts and in our lives. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology defines sin as a sincere desire, defines repentance as a, a sincere desire to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance as a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, 
and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin. Turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And so you get the, the stream that is running through all of those definitions. It is a forsaking of your sin. It is grieving over the sin that has offended God, but then it is turning from that sin into a full embrace of a new life of obedience unto God. And this, in fact, is what the prophecy of Jonah is really bringing home to us. It is what the prophecy of Jonah is really focusing on, the need of human beings everywhere to repent before God. Most of the time when we look at the prophecy of, of Jonah, most of us focus on the fish. Was it a whale? Is it possible that a human being can live for three days in the belly of a fish and then be vomited on dry land? How big exactly was the fish? What else was swimming around in the whale's belly? Do you, do you understand? It's interesting that the Bible doesn't make a big deal about the fish. It just says God appointed a fish and it swallowed up Jonah. And our fixation upon that fish can cause us to miss the true message of the text. In fact, one writer commented and confessed this. He says, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama going on inside of Jonah. That's where the real drama is taking place. That is the fixation of the text this morning. Not on what's going on inside the fish, but what is going on inside of Jonah. It was amazing, beloved. The fish is important, but the emphasis of Scripture is upon Jonah. And his repentance. And our text this morning reminds us of what true repentance is. And it begins with the acknowledgement of your sin. Begins with acknowledging your sin. But before Jonah would be used by God... God would bring Jonah to an end of himself. And that end that he brings Jonah to is the end where he admits and confesses, I am a sinner. That's where true repentance begins. It's acknowledging that you are a sinner. It is acknowledging that the main thing wrong with my world is me. It is acknowledging that your sin is the source of your misery. It is acknowledging and admitting that your sin 
is the source of your misery. And this is what Jonah came to understand. Ask yourself the question, beloved. Whose fault was it that Jonah was in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea? It was Jonah's. It was Jonah's. And this is the first first step in repentance and coming before God is to acknowledge, Lord, it's not my mother, it's not my sister, it's not my father, it's not my brother, but Lord, it's me. I am the issue. I am the biggest hindrance coming to you. It's me. And Jonah knew this in chapter 1 and verse 12, remember? When the, ra- when the sea is, is raging against the boat and the, and the boat is tossed and looks like everything is going to be lost, Jonah tells the men on the boat, throw me overboard and the storm will cease. Why? Because I know the reason for this storm. The misery that we are in is my fault. It's me. And so the men throw Jonah eventually overboard into the sea. But notice when you get to chapter 2 and into our text this morning in verse 3, you notice that Jonah understands that it is not the men who have thrown him overboard, but this is the chastisement of God for his sin. Even though, it, even though it were the men, it was the men who threw Jonah into the sea, Jonah understood that it was God who cast him down. But it says in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. You did this, God. You have done this for my chastisement. Because I have walked in disobedience, because of my sin, you have done this. It's important here that we understand that Jonah doesn't lay the blame at the feet of those who threw him overboard. For the issues in his life, the misery that he was experiencing, the chastisement that was his at this moment, he understood that those men meant nothing in the grand scheme of things. God has done this. It is important that you understand that it's your sin that causes your misery. This is, this is plainly stated for us by David, who would have known this intimately in Psalm 38, verse 3. Meditate on this this morning, beloved. David writes, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And Jonah here echoes that for he knows why death is upon him. He knows why, he says, the waters have surrounded him and the weeds have wrapped themselves around his head. He knows why that has happened. 
why does Jonah go down into misery? And here it is. Jonah goes down into misery because he chose to. Jonah goes down into misery because he chose to go down into misery. No, no, understand that he didn't get in that boat thinking that he would end up in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. That's not what he thought he was doing when he got into that boat. And yet the choice that he made to disobey God and to live in disobedience to God was a choice that was ultimately going to end up down, 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 and down into the grave. Most people don't choose, they don't think they're choosing misery when they choose to disobey God. But the end result is always the same. Jonah thought he was getting on that boat for a pleasure trip to Tarsus. But what he was really doing is living his life in disobedience to God. And that trip was going down, down, down fast. The choice that he made to live in disobedience to God, the choice to go down into the grave. And when you and I decide to disobey God, beloved, and to live our lives in rebellion, we decide to move away from God. And when you decide to move away from God, your life is steadily going down, 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 down. And if you belong to him, if you are his, the Bible says, when you do that, God is going to discipline you. When I was growing up, they used to tell us that a hard head makes for a soft behind. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't, a lot of hard heads around here, not, not enough soft behinds in my opinion. But it is still true with God. Hard heads still make for soft behinds. And you see it here with Jonah. And beloved, true repentance, therefore, is understanding that when God comes in chastisement, for your disobedience. No more excuses. No more excuses. David, again, he understood this well. In Psalm 51, verse 3, when he is confronted with his sin, he says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Can you hear Jonah saying that? I'm in the belly of this fish because I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. No more excuses. You have to take responsibility for your sin. 
That's the only way you get to true repentance. It is taking responsibility for your sin. David did that. Jonah does that this morning. But you know what? That's not our first instinct. Our first instinct is to blame others for our sin. That's our first instinct. And we get that naturally from our first parents. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden and God comes to them, says, Adam, where art thou? Adam, what have you done? And immediately, rather than taking responsibility for his sin, Adam said, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. If she hadn't been here, if she hadn't talked to me and convinced me, then I would not have sinned. It's it's her fault. He speaks to Eve, and Eve said, it's the serpent's fault. If you hadn't let him into this garden and given him access to us, then I wouldn't have sinned. Because our first instinct is to blame God others. That's what we do. We do it a lot. Our friends and our families whom God uses to show us our sin, they suddenly become our enemies. God used other people to show you your sin. The first thing our instincts do is to blame them. I don't like the way you talk to me. I don't like the way you said that. I don't like what you said. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat down with couples and individuals for counsel. And yet too often, It's not long that I discover it is not counsel that they want. It is confirmation. They don't want counsel. They want me to confirm them in their sin. And when I don't confirm them in their sin, then I become the bad guy. Rather than their sin being on the chopping block, they want my head on the chopping block. I don't want to go talk to him anymore. Well, the reason we're having the conversation is because of your sin. Beloved, listen, listen, listen to me very carefully. Jonah doesn't blame those men for being at the bottom of that sea for being in the belly of that fish. He knows it's his sin. And if you ever are inclined to go to somebody for counsel, own your sin. Own it. That is the only way you're going to get to true repentance is if you own it. It's yours. 
You don't blame somebody else. You don't blame somebody else who points it out. You don't blame somebody else who tries to counsel you out of it. You don't blame them. You say, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, it's illustrated for us in the Bible. Two places in particular. With John the Baptist and King Herod and David and the prophet Nathan. In Mark chapter 6, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist begins to preach against King Herod because King Herod is in an illicit relationship and he is in sin. And John the Baptist begins to preach against Herod's indiscretions. And what does Herod do when he hears that John the Baptist is preaching against him? Herod, does he repent of his sin? Does he, does he get before God and say, God, I have, I have sinned against you and against the nation, against your commands? No. He goes out and finds John the Baptist, and he cuts John the Baptist's head off. Because rather than owning his sin and doing away with his sin, he does away with John. But then there's David. David is in sin, living in sin, gross sin. And the prophet Nathan comes to him. You remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12? And Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. You're the man. And what does David do? Does he get mad with Nathan? Does he say, Nathan, Nathan, why are you putting my business on blast? You could have pulled me off to the side and quietly spoken to me about this, and we could have handled this in private. Why are you bringing me up before all these people in this court and telling my business? He doesn't say that, does he? Why? Because he knows it's not Nathan's fault. It's his It's his because he understands that it is the grace of God in his life and in your life. If you have people in your life who love you enough to talk to you about your sin, don't cut them off. That is the grace of God to you. And rather than get rid of Nathan, David gets before God. And he says, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Blot out my transgressions. Break these bones. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Do not take your spirit from me but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Beloved, true repentance is acknowledging your sin and knowing that it is your sin that has caused your misery. But it's not only knowing that your sin has caused your misery, But once you understand that, then you will also be able to understand that it is your sin, therefore, that points you to the mercy of God. 
That's why you want to acknowledge it. That's why you want to own it. Because not only does it cause you misery, but it is there that you find the mercy of God. It's the only way. Mercy, beloved, is the goodness and compassion of God in the midst of misery. That's what mercy is. And if you are not willing to acknowledge your misery, you won't experience the mercy of God. It's the goodness and compassion of God in the midst of our misery. And in this, then, you should see that your sin always should point you to Christ. Christ, Christ. And it does for Jonah. Notice the transitions because the mercy of God is transitional. It is not only transformative in our lives, but it is transitional in our lives. It transitions us from death to life. It transitions us from darkness to light. Notice what it says in verse 4. I am driven away from your sight, Jonah says, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Notice what he says in verse 6. I went down to the land who, who bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You see the transitions there. I was driven away, yet... I shall look upon your temple. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord. For the mercy of God transitions us. And it reminds us that sin is never the final word in the Christian life. That's why you repent. Because until you repent, sin is the final word. But it's through repentance that you understand that mercy comes. Mercy comes and your life is transitioned. You acknowledge your sin. You own your sin. And then once you acknowledge your sin, once you own your sin, you make a beeline to Christ. You run to Jesus. You run to the cross, and there you will find that mercy is great, and grace is free. Pardon for your soul will be multiplied to thee. But you got to acknowledge your sin. You got to own it. It is in there that you find the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And how do you know how do, how do you know, how do we know that Jonah received the mercy of God? What text tells us. We know he received the mercy of God because Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed. Notice what he says. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Because prayer, beloved, is a mercy of God. It is a mercy of God because no one prays who, who is not first moved upon by God to do so. You do understand 
that to pray, to cry out for God, to God for mercy is the mercy of God itself upon your life, awakening you to your need for God. What makes you aware of your sin? What makes you aware of your rebellion? What makes you aware of your disobedience? Is the grace, is the mercy of God. What causes a person to cry out to God? What causes a person to truly get before God and repent of their sins? It is but the mercy of God in the first place. Isn't it interesting that most of us don't pray until we find ourselves in misery? And yet, that should remind us that our misery is the grace of God causing us to cry out to God for mercy. Most of us won't pray until we get into misery. But at that moment, you should be reminded that it is the, it is the grace of God in the midst of your misery that will cause you to cry out for mercy. And so in that sense, beloved, you can thank God for the misery. For it is then that I come to understand and know his mercy. And God delights to answer that prayer. He always has. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner, is a prayer that God delights to and will answer over and over and over again. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You understand that when you come to God in repentance, it is mercy you will receive because it is mercy that you need. God delights to give it. However, when you refuse to repent, when you refuse to repent, when you refuse to repent and do the thing that you need most, you forsake what you need most, namely the mercy and the love of God. That's what Jonah says. In verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That word there, steadfast love, is chesed. It means the mercy of God. It means the covenant faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God. It is the loving kindness of God, where God is merciful to sinners. And Jonah says, those who pay regard those who worship, those who give their attention to vain and worthless idols, forsake that hope of mercy that they so desperately need. Idols. We all have them. We all have them. Tim Keller says, idols are spiritual addictions. Idols are spiritual addictions. 
They, they cause us to break the rules, to violate the law, and harm others, and even ourselves in order to have it. Did you get that? They are spiritual addictions, and they cause us to break the law. They, they cause us to violate the rules, to, to harm our others and even ourselves in order to have it. Anything, he says, more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you is an idol. We all have them in various forms. Money, popularity, sex, Power, influence, friends, family members, the list goes on and on. All these, all these and and more become idols, become spiritual addictions when we pay more close attention to them than we do the worship of God. And we all have them. We all have them. The question is not whether or not You and I have spiritual addictions. The question is, rather, are we turning from them in repentance? For the only cure for spiritual addiction is the mercy of God. It's a steadfast love. It's a covenant faithfulness of God. That is the only cure. And do you know what's part of that cure sometimes? Part of the cure for spiritual addiction is is like part of the cure for drug addiction, and that is interventions. At times, the, the part of the cure for spiritual addictions is an intervention. This is what Jonah received. Jonah received a spiritual intervention. That's what David received. David received a spiritual intervention. This is what the apostle Paul received on the road to Damascus, a spiritual intervention. And interventions are God's way often of reminding us not to take the mercy of God lightly. When he intervenes powerfully in our lives through other people, but oftentimes just through the coming together of the people of God. Do you know that every week when you come to church and you hear the word of God sung and you hear the word of God preached, that is God intervening in your life saying, wake up! And don't forsake the mercy of God to you this morning. Wake up! And not only acknowledge your sin, but wake up and acknowledge your Savior. Acknowledge Him who has come to save you. Acknowledge Him who has come to give you the mercy of God. Acknowledge him. That's always the end 
of the intervention, beloved. That's why don't get upset about the intervention. Drop the addiction. And look to Christ. Wake up. And that's what Jonah did. He down in that fish for three days, and that spiritual intervention comes to him, and wow, the light goes on. And he not only acknowledges sin, but then he acknowledges Savior. Those who are made aware of their sin are then made aware also that there is only one hope, and it's Jesus. There is only one hope. And Jonah expresses this in a truth in one sentence that is arguably my favorite sentence in all the Bible where he just puts it plainly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He he got it. He woke up. That's it. Salvation belongs to the Lord to the Lord. If you're reading out of the ESV this morning, the English Standard Version, they added an exclamation point because they understand the emphasis. This is where God was bringing Jonah to the point where he will acknowledge salvation is of the Lord. If you're reading out of the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation as and alone in there to make the emphasis. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Because the point is this, beloved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when you acknowledge your sin, you discover that blessed truth. There's nothing more comforting Nothing more comforting than that. True repentance demands a trust in Christ. It demands seeing that salvation comes no other way but through Jesus. And to say that salvation belongs to the Lord is to really say what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. In verse 36, where he, he says that from him and through him and to him are all things. To say that salvation belongs to the Lord is to say that salvation is from him, that salvation is through him, that salvation is to him. It's all he is. It's from him. And he is the author and the finisher of our faith, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and, and verse 2. That is he who brings salvation to us. It's from the Lord. You often hear people make the statement, well, you know, we need to have a come to Jesus meeting. And beloved, you don't come to Jesus. He comes to you. He comes to you. And in coming to you, you are allowed now to come to him. What we celebrate at Christmas time. Salvation came down. Jesus came to us. Read the scriptures and you will find all these people who come to Jesus while Jesus is on the earth. Do you understand that if you look closely, it's actually Jesus who has made himself available to them? 
don't come to Jesus unless Jesus comes to you. And when he comes to you, he says, now, come unto me. Because salvation is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. It's not only from the Lord, it is through the Lord. Knowing that there is no other way. No other way, contrary to popular opinions. All dogs do not go to heaven. Nor do all roads lead there either, beloved. There is only one way. It is through the Lord. Salvation is not a smorgasbord. Repentance is not like golden corral. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it tells us that there is only one name given among men whereby men must be saved. Only one. There is only one way. And that's why when it comes to preaching the gospel, you and I and the church of Jesus Christ is a one-trick pony. Jesus Christ is the only way. So salvation is not only from him, but salvation is through him, and salvation is to him. Salvation is not to make much of you. It, is not make, it, is not, it does not come to us in order to make much of us. God didn't save you so that you would be great. Sorry. God didn't save you so that you would be great. He saved you so that he would be great. That he would be honored. That he would be glorified. Salvation is not about you and neither is your repentance. Therefore, you and I must learn what Jonah learned. Jonah, it is not about you. It's about the Lord. Because salvation belongs to him. Salvation is about God. You know what happened to Jonah in that fish? Jonah had a come to Jesus moment, didn't he? That's what he had. He had a come to Jesus moment, but he realized that the only reason that he could come to Jesus is because in the midst of his misery, Jesus came to him. He came to him. And that's why Jonah could sing as we could sing. And I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, I weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. And I came to Jesus just as I was wounded, weary, and sad. And I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Gladness, gladness, beloved, comes from true repentance. That's the end goal. Do you know that when you truly repent, your heart is made glad? 
You are, not, you are no longer burdened with that sin and transgression. You are free to worship God in spirit and in truth. When you repent, your heart is made glad. That's God's desire. His desire this morning is for every heart in here to be glad. For that gladness comes through repentance and trust in Christ. Would you be glad this morning? Would you come in repentance this morning? Oh, beloved, there is no sin too great that our Lord will not forgive and make you glad if you would come this morning. Come, come to Jesus, for he is here, and he has come to you. Let's pray.